Well, good morning and happy new year almost. And uh, my, my prayer for you is that uh, the, the new year will be uh, rich and it will be an opportunity in which to grow in your faith, grow in your opportunities to share the good news about Jesus. And uh, you'd have an opportunity to grow in your relationship with family and friends. Uh, all of these are enriching things. Uh, I was thinking about today since uh, obviously being New Year's Eve and, and what the new year uh, should look like. And it, and it always looks like a new opportunity. It's supposed to be something uh, fresh and uh, always reminded of people making New Year's resolutions. I, I don't know that I have ever made a New Year's uh, resolution. I, I think part of that is because my belief is that, uh, that as things come up that I need to resolve to do, I don't need to wait for the new year, but it is an excellent time to stop and take stock, right? What does my life look like and what should it look like moving forward? And so, uh, really the, the thing that, that, uh, stands out if you kind of look at some of the data that, uh, that, that people do for the new year, uh, the largest area of people's lives that they decide they're going to work on with a resolution for the new year is to be in good, better health and uh, exercise, maybe lose some weight, things like that. In fact, according to the Global Health and Fitness Association, 12% of all gym memberships start in January, and that may not seem like a lot. It's, it's just over 8% for, on average for each of the other months. And uh, of the memberships that start in January, 50% end by the end of January. People like cancel, they start and don't even make it a month. That sounds sad. And then if you um, uh, look at through October of that year, only 22% of those new January memberships make it not even a year. Uh, why is this desire to get in shape, to lose weight, to exercise? And there's, there's definitely a connection between starting a new year and starting the new year out right. Uh, I, knew, uh, I knew a guy who wanted to quit smoking. And it seemed like he tried lots of different things and just nothing seemed to work for him. And he was you know, just kind of stuck in this addiction. And then, and then one time, you know, he's like, yeah, I've, I've stopped. It had been, it'd been several weeks and he hadn't smoked a cigarette. And, and, and we're like, yeah, you're going to do it. This is great. And then one day I saw him and he was smoking again. I'm like, well, wait a minute. What happened? You were doing so well. They said, well, okay, so I was driving home from work and I wanted a cigarette. And so I reached in the glove box and I pulled out a pack and I started smoking. And so now I'm smoking again. Now you might catch the same problem that I noticed when that happened. I said, well, wait a minute. You wanted to quit smoking and you had packs of cigarettes in your glove box? That doesn't even make sense. I said, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you get rid of them? He said, well, well, in case I wanted one. 
So to me, that means he didn't really want to quit, right? If you're really intent on starting the new year right, it's going to mean making some changes. They might be drastic changes. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he, he says this. This is 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The, the intention is that in Christ, we are new. There's a, a principle in Scripture. It comes up quite a bit. It's that the kingdom of God is both coming and at hand, right? That, that we're in the kingdom of God, but it's also something that's, that's coming. We're living in the world, but we're not of the world, right? It's, it's both at once. We're fully redeemed, justified in Christ, but we're also in a process of sanctification, right? It's this both, you are what God uh, did through the cross. He redeemed you and justified you. Right now, you were declared just and right and righteous by the blood of Christ, but you're also in a process of growing into that image of Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation and not yet. We are justified, past tense. We are in the process of sanctification and we will one day be glorified, right? It's this, here's what we are now, here's where we're going to be, and we're not quite there even though we are declared just and righteous in Christ. It's like the, what the apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth. He says, we, it's, we see through a mirror dimly, but there will be a day when we will, uh, shall fully know, even as we are fully known by God, right? There's a day when, when all of this kind of makes sense. We will be able to see it clearly that our old self would be crucified with him so that we no longer have to sin in Romans 6 6 it says that 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 the old self is crucified so we don't have to sin anymore before our relationship with God through Christ we sin in Christ we no longer have to sin so, wait a minute, then, then what's our excuse, right? If we don't have to sin anymore, that part of it, it's not that simple. These lives we live aren't that simple, that th sin isn't just black and white. If it was easy, then we wouldn't have Romans 7. So Romans 7, really dealing with this idea that, that, come on, if we're done with sin, we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to start every year new. We don't have to deal with conviction of sin because we no longer have to sin anymore. No, it's more complicated than that. In Romans 7, what Paul explains to us, I'm so grateful because he is so transparent for our benefit. He says, for I don't do what I want, but I do everything that I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. 
so that now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, right? He's like, okay, look, here I am. I'm Paul, the apostle, right? I'm, I'm spreading the gospel, spreading the good news, planting churches, training people. I mean, this is Paul who goes, look, there's things that I want to do that I don't do and things that I don't want to do that I keep doing. I keep doing the things that I hate. Whew, it's not just me, right? It's Paul too. Paul's like, look, I'm dealing with this too. And he even, he even expresses his frustration. He says, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of sin. You and I are not the first people to deal with sin, to struggle with sin. Or, okay, I said you and I, maybe I'm just talking about me. You guys are, are doing all right. No, every one of us, we, we should be struggling. By the way, if you're not struggling, it means you've given in. So it means we should be struggling with it. So here's what we ought to do, right? As we take stock heading into the new year, realizing that there are things we ought not do and things we ought to start doing better. To start the year right, you need to stop what is wrong and do what is right. I can't make it more clear than that. This is the heart of repentance, right? So repentance means that you acknowledge there are things you need to stop, things you need to not do anymore, and that you turn from it, right? That's what repentance means. You're turning from it and that you turn toward the right things. As I tell my students, if you're not happy with where your grades are, right? Normally, this is the discussion we have after their first exam. All right, here's what you do. If you're not happy with where you're at, make a plan to do something different. It doesn't make any sense to keep doing what you've been doing if you're happy, not happy with what, where you're at. And then I say the opposite. If you're happy, if things are going great, then keep doing it. That's how it works. But if you're like, man, I'm not going to pass. I'm going to struggle. You need to make a change. If there's something in your life you ought to be doing different then you have to make a change. Uh, Jesus explained it this way. Matthew 12, starting in verse, verse 43, he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. Then they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. And so also will it be with this evil gene. Uh, I think I cut off the end of that, but there we go. You see, it's a two-part principle. You need to stop the old and start the new. If you try to stop what is wrong and don't replace it with anything, then there's a void. Right? There's, there's a, uh, an empty spot that then all of a sudden the vacuum gets filled with other things. It's why people who go to jail serve out their term, they get out, and then go back to jail again. In fact, in the United States, it's about 44% of people that within the first year go back to jail. And that number doubles if you take it out to three years. 
right, that it's almost 80%. Why? Because going to jail doesn't mean when you come out, all of a sudden you know how to live without committing the same kinds of crimes. You have to fill your life with other things. That's why there's, so, there's some incredible ministries that help incarcerated people how to live without that. Jesus told Nicodemus that if you're going to be saved, you must be born again. Well, how's that for a whole new life, right? Born again? That sounds clear. In Christ, we are to be born again. Remember back in the, the 80s, that there was a lot of people they would like ask this, are you born again? I, I, was, I, was, I was a kid. I'm not to, to date myself a bit. I didn't go to church, so I didn't even understand it. And so to me, it seemed like there was two groups of people. There were Christians, and then there were born again Christians. By the way, that's not a thing, right? If you are a Christian, what scripture says is you are born again. You are born again into the spirit. And so there's not this separate thing, those that seem maybe more holy or not, those a bit more committed or not. No, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Scripture says you are born again into new life. Peter describes our new life when we're born again in his first letter to the churches. This is chapter one of 1 Peter, starting in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith for precious, more precious than gold, that perishes when it's tested through fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that because God's, because of God's mercy, we are born again to new life that has three characteristics. Right? This is the, what we're ascribing to uh, as Christians. Our life in Christ is to be hopeful, holy, and durable. He says, living hope that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. If you're, you're thinking, well, this sounds like maybe a message for new believers, right? I've been a Christian for a while. I've been going to church for a while. I, I don't know if this is for me. Well, I don't know about you, but I need a reminder every now and then and maybe all the time. And let's remember, even professional athletes need coaches. Shohei Otani still needs a hitting coach. No matter how long you've been a believer, we need to be reminded and encouraged in regard to our faith. And so that's what it's going to sound like today. So those three things. First of all, our hope is established in Jesus. Right, that our faith being born again, our faith is to be 
have hope. And it's founded in Jesus. It's not an arbitrary hope or baseless hope. It's not hope founded in some Pollyanna worldview, but, but hope founded in Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, 9, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes, let us be sober. That's not a, a New Year's Eve comment. That means to be in your right mind. We need to be in our right mind. We need to think clearly. When you do, there is a connection between being in your right mind, clear thinking, and faith and hope, right? That when you think clearly about what God has created and what he did for us on the cross, then it, it encourages you toward faith and hope. The breastplate of faith and the helmet of the hope of salvation. But it's, where is our hope found, right? It's not that baseless hope. Our hope is found in something. Psalm 62, starting in verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. See, hope is not enough. It's not enough to be hopeful, right? If you have hope that's baseless, you're going to seem really strange. Like, why are you so cheerful about no good reason? No, our hope is found in Christ. Faith and belief aren't enough, right? You have to have faith and belief in something. It's what you hope in, have faith in, believe in. It's in Jesus, the power of the cross, in God. Peter also wrote, undefiled. This means holy, right? Holiness, it, it's not supposed to be mysterious, right? You, you often see the, the image of the holy man or something in movies. It's not what holiness is. Holiness means set apart for a purpose. We are to be set apart for a purpose, committed to the cause of Christ. In holiness, we are to seek righteousness, right? That, that process of becoming more like Jesus. We, we ought to grow in faith. Righteousness is a right relationship with God. His plans and his commandments what we do matters. It's not that what we want doesn't matter. It's that our priorities change, right? It's not all about me anymore. We search for what God wants for us. And that's, that's actually an exciting thing. It's kind of the neat thing about being a new believer, being a young, young Christian, that excitement about, God, what do you want from me? What, what is it that you want me to do? How can I serve you with my life? What can I do to represent you? How can I show your love to those around me? What a privilege 
that is. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Everything else, the, all the other things that I thought my life was about, he says, I consider those things rubbish compared to knowing Christ, compared to being found in him. Everything else is loss. Many will seek to gain the world, yet forfeit their souls. What does that mean to gain the world? What does that look like today? It used to be to gain the world would be to gain wealth or power, prestige, status. What is it now? Let's think about it. What is it kind of for, for young people? Perhaps some self of, uh, sense of self-satisfaction, living out your own truth, maybe the power of your feelings and how you feel about things. Uh, what does it look like? Maybe to, to set some of those things aside in order to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Then Peter says our faith is to be unfading. We experience our walk with God through the ups and downs of life, but there should be no waning and waxing of our faith. Right? We, we notice that, that when the events of life go on, we feel closer to God at times than others, but, but our faith doesn't change. Is still found in him because our faith endures even when challenged. And there will be challenges, right? There's going to be events that go on in your life that are hard. When it gets hard, maybe to go to church, right? When you've got little kids, when someone's sick, when things are going on, when you or your loved ones deal with some sort of challenge, what will you do? I was reading an article this week. And one of the questions that it, it tr attempted to answer was answered by a pastor this way. Uh, the question was, what is the hardest part of being a pastor? And he said, uh, this was the one that, that rang true for me. He says, walking through the really difficult events in life with people only to have them check out or leave due to some minor perceived offense, right? Because it, it didn't endure. It was, I know people that don't go to church at all anymore because at some point in church, they got their feelings hurt, right? Someone said something that hurt their feelings and, and not only did they like find a new church, they just stopped going to church. Like their relationship with God was affected 
because someone perhaps made a thoughtless comment. I've mentioned this in in churches before. I often say, look, so here's the thing. I will definitely say things that are thoughtless. It, It happens, Right? I say things and then afterward go, I can't believe that came out of my mouth. That, that, that definitely would have hurt someone. And, and my goal then is always to make it right. But often people aren't willing to let you because they check out before you can even make it right. One of our goals is always to, to follow scripture, right? When you have a, a, a problem, some offense with a brother or sister, you go make it right. That's why we have the hard attitudes. And so Jesus kind of dealing with this. He says this, this is Luke 9, 23. He says, uh, he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So how does that have anything to do with what you just said? Because often the reason we're offended is we put as the highest good in our life, our feelings about something. And and that's not supposed to be the goal. The highest good in our life is glory to God. And it glorifies God when his people make relationships right. When they choose the good of the cause of Christ over their own maybe understanding of what someone said. But this is the hard part. Deny yourself and follow Jesus. It is hard. Right? It's a challenge. And it means daily committing to this cause. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God explained what new life would look like in the lives of the Jewish people. This is in Ezekiel 11. Starting in verse 17, he says, Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all of its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. And I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and give my rules and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. The new life for the Jews would be unity. Then he says, I will, I will give them a new heart, right? Instead of that heart of stone, I'll give them a heart of flesh. That, that imagery is, is so graphic, Because their heart of flesh can feel things, right? Their heart of flesh understands the purpose of the community. New life for us starts with a heart transplant. Our life in Jesus is powered by grace through faith in our Savior, right? That's what it's supposed to look like for the church. Paul wrote to the church in Rome about our being justified by grace. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, what God desires to do in the life of his people is make a radical change. By grace, through faith. Not because they got it all figured out, but when they mess up, they work to make it right. They rely on each other. I have a, uh, an example of new life that results in trusting in a savior. I love this passage because it, it, it shows us God at work throughout all of human history. This is in uh, the book of Job. Uh, God mentions Job to Satan. I don't know how that works, right? I've always been intrigued and a bit scared. Like, how is this going on? But God mentions Job to Satan. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And so... Satan takes it as a challenge. That's it. I'm after this guy. That's a bit daunting for Christians. That it's possible that that you could have a target on your back. In fact, scripture is pretty clear. Right? There's places in the New Testament that says, they will hate you because they hated me first. Right? It's a real thing. And so Job is informed. He's given reports and informed that his sheep, his servants, ten children have all died. Due to thieving intruders or natural disasters, Job rips his clothes, which is a thing, shaves his head. Job's afflicted by terrible skin sores. His wife urges him, denounce God, give up and die, Job. Yeah, nice encouraging wife like that one. Job's just trying to endure. His three friends come along. Uh, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar arrive to uh, comfort him. They're not very comforting. Uh, They sit with Job in silence for seven days. And and here's their conclusion. Uh, Elphaz concludes that Job's pain must be due to some sin. He uh, encourages Job or recommends that Job should seek God's favor. Come on, Job, just admit your sin and implore God to give you, grant you favor. Bildad supposes that Job's children brought their deaths upon themselves. That's encouraging. Thanks, Bildad. Zophar suggests that whatever wrongdoing Job has done, he has likely deserves more suffering than he's already gotten. That's rough. Thanks so far. Uh, You haven't endured enough suffering. Job, there should be more. So be grateful for the little you've had. And then in the midst of all of that, we see Job's heart. Job 19, 25. He says, for I know my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. We get a picture of Job's understanding as God, as his redeemer, that he would redeem him. 
Job claimed God's promises of redemption even in uh, most likely early times before the time of Moses. And then here's why the events of Job's life fit so well into what we're talking about. For the new year, here it is. This is Job 42, kind of the conclusion, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he had prayed for his friends, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy, comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the later days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen. A thousand female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of the first daughter, Jemima. The name of the second, uh, Keziah. The name of the third, Karen Hapach. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers, which is kind of unheard of. Then after this, Job lived 140 years. After that, 140 years, he saw his sons and his sons' sons for four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. Now, this isn't about wealth, right? This isn't about, look at all the, the blessings that seem to have come to Job. This is about restoration, this is about the challenges of his life. And it looked like everything was, was, was done for. Job just cursed God and die, he was told by his wife. No, this is about restoration. The, the, the purpose of the gospel is that it is good news. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we would believe in him and not perish. That we could trust him and be redeemed. That our sin can be forgiven and we can have eternal life. I so appreciate Job and the challenges that he's faced. They, they definitely look like the challenges of my life as really small. And God still worked in those circumstances. I'm reminded of John 5.17 where Jesus says, my father is still at work to this very day, and I too am working. By the way, I read that 30 years ago, and you know what? It wasn't just 30 years ago that he was still at work. It's today he's still at work. It's in 2024 he's still at work. Then he desires to work at your, in your life. And if you're in need of restoration, that's what God promises to do. If maybe it's just some little area of your life where you're like, man, I really need to make a change. Then, then today's the day to make that decision. And you head into the new year to make those changes. And some of those might be drastic, right? The stop, the, the, what's wrong, stop the things you ought not do and start doing the things that you should. Maybe those things are really drastic and really hard. 
then those would be the times you go to a brother or sister and say, here's what I'm dealing with. Can you help me? Will you support me in that? Will you help hold me accountable? And then be ready to do the same for them. I have some next steps for you today. First of all, start reading a Bible reading program, right? I'm going to read the Bible every day. Pick a time, set an alarm, and read it. It holds the truth of hope. And it's worth it every time. And then uh, second, reflect on where I'm not trusting God and start to make those changes. And then I let, left the last one blank because my guess is, is as we've been talking, there's some things you went, oh, I really need to, to make a change there. Put that down on your list. Regardless of what God has in store for us in 2024, I am confident that he desires to grow us into the likeness of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for you and encourage you to, to work with him to make those changes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful. We're grateful for what you have done for us on the cross. We are grateful for what you desire to do in our lives. Even in this last day of 2023, as we head into the next year, that we wouldn't be like the people starting a gym membership in January and giving up on it before February even starts. Father, that we would be transformed, born again into new life. Then in that new life, we would grow in faith, in hope, endurance, that our faith would be unfading. Help us to do that. Father, if there's a, a challenge we have in our relationships here in the church, with brothers and sisters, maybe in our family, co-workers, that, that you give us courage, you convict us that we need to make those relationships right. We wouldn't hold our feelings as most important. Father, that we would grow in our understanding of who you are and commit to you. Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for another year that we can better serve you and grow in our understanding of who you are for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.